Welcome to the Women in Government podcast, a way for people to come together and discuss important issues and policies of the day. Today, we'll be talking about the employability of people with disabilities. To get the conversation started, here's Maryland Delegate Cherie Sample-Hughes. Hi, I'm Maryland Delegate Cherie Sample-Hughes. And did you know that there are 56 million people with disabilities in the United States? According to the 2016 Annual Disability Statistics Compendium, those with disabilities represent just over 12% of the population. If we look at the employment rate for people with disabilities and compare it to those without, only 34.9% of people with disabilities are employed versus the 76% of those without disabilities. Let's go further. If we look at the poverty rate, just over 27% of people with disabilities are living in poverty compared to 12.3% of people without disabilities. There is clearly an issue that needs to be addressed. Here to join me on the very first Women in Government podcast is Bobby Silverstein, a Washington, D.C.-based attorney and team member of the State Exchange on Employment and Disability. Thanks for being with us today, Bobby. Thanks for inviting me. I'd also like to introduce our second guest, Kyle Ingram, Disabilities Employment Policy Specialist at the National Conference of State Legislatures and SEED team member. Hi there. Thanks for having me. And finally, we are happy to have Tennessee State Senator Becky Duncan Massey, who served as a member of the CSG NCSL National Task Force on Employment of People with Disabilities. It's great to be with you today. Thank you so very much for being here, and thanks to all the listeners who are taking the time to hear this important discussion about the employability of people with disabilities. To get started, Senator Massey, why does work matter for people with disabilities? It's an important part of all of our lives. If you think about it, the first question when you meet somebody is, what do you do? It gives you a sense of identity and it enhances a positive self-image and self-worth, as well as a sense of accomplishment. And for folks with disabilities, and I've been a disability provider for 24 years now, it means more than a paycheck for the folks that we serve at my agency. It really means being truly a part of the community and not just kind of as it used to be relegated to the shadows and totally relying upon the charity of strangers. I couldn't agree more. When you reference sense of identity, that in of itself means an entire lot for many, many people. Kyle, same question. You know, and I think that for people with disabilities, as Senator Massey said, work is an important activity, important facet of being in the community. But it's also really an important consideration for states as they look at how they deliver services and how they consider the impact of not working on their state budgets. I think that one of the things that doesn't get talked about very often is the idea that people with disabilities, when they become employed and when they maintain their jobs, they're able to contribute to a taxpayer base and they're able to sort of lessen their need for the use of state safety net services. And and I think that's another important consideration to make and something that needs to be said in this conversation. Absolutely. 
opinions about the employability of people with disabilities has changed over the years. Bobby, you have been working on disability policy for over 45 years. Will you please share with us your perception on how state policymakers have viewed and currently view the employability of people with disabilities? Sure. When we look at public policy, it's often important to go backwards and provide a historical context because some folks are still looking at policy or looking at this case of people with disabilities with an old lens. So historically, federal, state, and local policymakers and a lot of professionals treated people with disabilities as defective, as in need of fixing. If a professional couldn't fix somebody or a policymaker felt like there was something wrong, the result of the policy was exclusion, segregation, and denial of services. Let me give you a couple of quick examples. We used to have what was called ugly laws in a lot of states and local communities. One example of an ugly law is a person who is disease-maimed or in any way deformed so as to be an unsightly or disgusting object is prevented from being in the current way. This particular ordinance was on the books in Chicago until 1974. We had states that were excluding children with disabilities, including students with cerebral palsy. There was one Supreme Court case in Wisconsin where the school board claimed the child, the same was merit, was crippled and defective, produced a depressing and nauseating effect on other students. And the Supreme Court in Wisconsin said that he should be totally excluded because his presence is, quote, harmful to the best interests of the school. We had state laws that required people with developmental disabilities to be sterilized against their will. And one of these cases actually went to the U.S. Supreme Court, where Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said, sure, these laws are perfectly reasonable in order to, quote, prevent our being swamped with incompetence. It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crimes, we should be able to prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. This was the old paradigm, the old notion that people with disabilities were vulnerable, dependent, in need of fixing. Now, policymakers led by a lot of states have rejected this old approach. And instead, there is a new paradigm, a new approach, which basically says that disability, like race, like gender, is a natural and normal part of the human experience that in no way diminishes that person's right to fully participate in all aspects of society. And so the focus should be on fixing the environment, not fixing somebody with a chronic condition. Thank you so much for that information. It certainly gives us a perspective on how things have been done and how laws have been implemented over time to affect that very population. Senator Massey, uh, would you any thoughts that you may have on this particular area of the paradigm? Well, I think Bobby gave a real good overview of the history of where we've come from. I think the highest level is looking at 
developing policies that utilize folks' skills to their fullest and to participate in their community to the fullest. But I think as far as policymakers are concerned, sometimes it often depends upon their personal experience because oftentimes there are many policymakers that have not had any experience with people with disabilities and need to be educated and learn a little bit more about it. There are still policymakers that look at it as charity, but I think more and more are learning about and embracing the idea that folks with disabilities can make valuable contributions to their communities. Another aspect of policymaking that always, you know, they always say anytime there's a good idea, you have to talk about that six-letter word, the budget or the cost, and so there are often policymakers are concerned about either funding the new policies or even the cost of accommodations to the community. So those are all aspects that get interwoven in making new policy. Senator, while I have you on that same subject, if you could for me, could you give some examples of any shifts in your state that have occurred with regards to the old versus the new paradigm? Well, I mean, we've done several things in Tennessee that are moving us in the right direction. The governor actually did do an executive order on employment first, and we were one of the few states that got the federal grant on employing people with disabilities there. We have got a new waiver that is an employment and community first waiver. We have the post-secondary programs. And then I actually was the sponsor of our Achieving a Better Life Experience, our ABLE legislation, after it was passed at the federal level. And we were the second state to implement it through our treasurer's office. They were real excited about it and working on it. And I think we have the, even though we're a smaller state, we have the second highest contributions in funds invested in our ABLE accounts now. So we are making great strides. Sometimes you have to look to make sure you're moving thoughtfully and not, you know, I'm real big on we've got to be careful to not have the one size fits all because sometimes the pendulum swings and sometimes it can swing too far because it's like, well, everybody needs to work. Well, there's some folks at my agency that we serve that are older and they want to just have fun. So sometimes we've got to do it carefully and take into consideration the people when we make the policy. Kyle, I certainly want to make you a part of this conversation as well. What are your thoughts on this same subject? Well, I think Senator Massey really hit it on the head when she kind of mentioned the role that experience and having some sort of personal interaction and engagement with this topic can bring to a state policymaker's motivation to sort of target or address this issue. One of the things that doesn't necessarily need to be left out of this conversation is the changes in technology and transportation and the role that that has had in the past 30 to 40 years in creating new opportunities for people with disabilities to work either in the workplace or through some sort of teleconferencing. And so I think when state legislators and state policymakers have an opportunity to see those benefits and people with disabilities in the workplace and see that in action, I think that helps provide sort of a lens to imagine how these policies can be addressed and strengthened to promote employability for people with disabilities. So what we've heard is, historically, policymakers and professionals treated people with disabilities as defective, 
and in need of fixing. The focus of the new paradigm is on fixing the physical and social environment to provide effective and meaningful opportunity to people with disabilities, not on fixing persons with chronic or remitting conditions. With that being said, Fabi, what are the goals of this new paradigm of disability policy? In the Americans with Disabilities Act, at the beginning of the law, there is actually four goals of national disability policies that are articulated. These are not the goals only of the ADA. These were kind of a summation of looking at state laws, local laws, and federal policy, and just trying to summarize the four goals of national disability policy. And they are equality of opportunity, full participation, independent living, and economic self-sufficiency. And let me try to share a little bit what I mean by each of those goals. Equality of opportunity, that has three core concepts. Treat people as individuals based on facts, based on evidence, based on sound research. Don't treat people based on labels, fear, ignorance, prejudice, or pernicious mythologies. Treat people based on the facts as individuals with high expectations. The second is full participation. This is the concept, and in the disability community, the phrase is used, nothing about us without us. That includes the notion of being involved at the policymaking level and at the individual level. The concepts of principles or approaches of self-determination, self-advocacy, informed choice are very critical components of full participation. The third is independent living, that that should be recognized as a legitimate goal of our public policy to help facilitate folks living independently in the community, in some cases with education on how to live independently, and in some cases with necessary services and supports. And the fourth goal is economic self-sufficiency, that for many, employment, the job, is a key component. And as Senator Massey said, it may not be for everybody, but this should be the default, the presumption, the priority that we should, as a society and state policymakers and federal policymakers and local policymakers, should be thinking of ways of how does a public policy facilitate, not impede, independent living and economic self-sufficiency. And this is not just disability-specific programs, but all of our generic policies, whether we're talking about health care, daycare, transportation, all of our public policies, employment policies, should be fostering these four goals for all people, including people with disabilities. I'm glad you elaborated on each one of those four goals because I'm seeing actually a shift here in Maryland of the thinking and the mindset changing here and my own colleagues, if you will. The goals of disability policy are important, but what are the action steps state policymakers can include to maximize that these policies will be implemented? See, that's a really, really good question because implementation is what people with disabilities and their family members really care about. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to have a 
broad precept that disability is a natural part of the human experience and to have the four goals. But the real question is what happens when the rubber meets the road, when you have an actual program, a service, a support? Is it facilitating these goals or is it impeding them? And therefore, it's really important to look at these, quote, methods of administration and whether there is an infrastructure to support this. Do you have an entity or an individual who is responsible for ensuring compliance, for ensuring implementation? Are there finance systems, reimbursement rates, accountability measures? Is there a strategic plan? Is there an infrastructure of people to ensure that these goals are being achieved? States around the country are recognizing that it's not only the precept, it's not only the goals, but it's also making sure that the implementation strategies, methods, approaches are facilitating and not impeding achieving these ultimate policy objectives. But also there are these other two principles that the opportunity must be effective and meaning for all. Sometimes we just design programs for the quote average person. We don't take into consideration the needs of folks in this case with disabilities. We have concepts like reasonable accommodations and free appropriate public education and program accessibility. But what we're really saying is that When we design something, we should take into consideration the needs of the broad population and make it effective and meaningful all. And the last thing is this notion of most integrated setting appropriate, that default should be an inclusive environment with supplementary aids and services so that people with disabilities are interacting with non-disabled folks to the maximum extent possible. And I'll just add a little bit to that. I think as you develop these new policies, you need to look at what is working and what is not, how to tweak it, how to make it better. Oftentimes, policy is put in place or new programs, and it's like nobody can ever say anything wrong about them. So we've got to look at the pluses and the minuses there. I definitely believe in developing the accountability to come back and say, is this working? Is it not? How can it be improved? We've got to look at the blending and braiding of services that will help in the implementation because too often government works in silos and not works together. That is important that we do. Another area is to address the barriers in the implementation of these policies, whether that's the funding or the different departments, as I said, not working together or confusing system for the consumers. Oftentimes, the consumers don't know who to call to get to the right people to utilize those services. And even then, they'll call one department or one one person and they'll put them off on somebody else. And we see that all the time. And then there's preconceptions by the policymakers to address and the policymakers not understanding the complicated system of services. And then we need to look at how to get community buy-in. And then at the end of the day, we need to celebrate the successes and tell our stories. 
Absolutely. It's like looking at things holistically. I'm, I'm sitting here. I wish you could see me nodding my head. I feel like I'm in your amen corner right now. <laughs> or or maybe like, yes. one of those little dolls with the nodding head. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. That's exactly how I'm feeling right now. Each one of you touched on all the pieces that are necessary for us to be stronger in our policy making and truly having it implemented in the framework in which it should be. Senator Massey, in your experience, who needs to be at the table when disability policy is being considered? Well, the problem is a lot of times it's just the State Department's the employees there that develop the policies and they don't really understand. They know the concept, but they don't understand how it really will happen in reality to the folks. The absolute person that needs to be at the table are the consumers, the people that will be affected the most by it. That's at all levels, but along with the consumers, you need their family members, their advocates, providers, policymakers, policy implementers, which would be like the State Department, and then folks from the business and the education community. In an effort to ensure state policies facilitate increased employment of people with disabilities, state intermediary organizations, one being women in government, have teamed up to create the State Exchange on Employment and Disability, also known as SEED. Kyle, what is SEED doing and how are its partners working to make employment more disability inclusive? Thanks uh, for that great question, Delegate Sample Hughes. So the SEED project, the State Exchange on Employment and Disability, is really a collaborative effort of these organizations that engage state policymakers, as was just mentioned, these include, for the SEED team, Women in Government, the Council on State Governments, and the National Conference of State Legislatures. And so these state intermediary organizations, through the SEED project, are working in partnership with the U.S. Department of Labor's Office of Disability Employment <clears throat> Policy to support state efforts to address issues that are hindering the employment and employability of people with disabilities. So that collaboration really happens in between the state intermediary organizations and then with the U.S. Department of Labor's ODEP, or Office of Disability Employment Policy. So really, this is sort of a dynamic exchange of ideas and expertise between all these organizations. And what that allows us to do is two things. First, it allows us to tap into sort of an immense network of policy expertise and experience over many decades in both the state intermediary organizations and also the U.S. Department of Labor. And the second thing that it allows us to do really is to improve and increase our ability to provide technical assistance to state policymakers. And so the SEED project really results in capacity building, both in terms of our engagement with state legislators and state policymakers, but also within the state intermediary organizations themselves. We're really working in a concerted way among the groups that are part of the SEED project to really build out a strong base of knowledge that can allow state policymakers to really best meet the needs and challenges of this issue. I know you touched on it, and I'm just going to reiterate it again that one of the most significant outcomes of SEED was the convening of a joint national task force on workforce development and people with disabilities that was made up of NCSL and CSG. And they were able to address the many barriers to employment 
and develop policy solutions to help build a thriving workforce that is disability inclusive. In a report titled Work Matters, a framework for states on workforce development for people with disabilities, the task force described a range of related policy initiatives for consideration by states. And Kyle, if you will, just tell us a little bit more on how Work Matters framework developed. I'd be happy to. So as you mentioned, one of the first things that the SEED team did was develop and then convene this joint national task force, Workforce Development for People with Disabilities. And this was a collaborative effort of the National Conference of State Legislatures and the Council of State Governments. And really what we did was we brought together a bipartisan task force of state policymakers, really combined, comprised 40 members from legislatures and executive agencies from both parties and with lots of regional diversity. And they engaged in a member-driven process to develop a set of recommendations. And so we split these members of the task force into four subcommittees. And each one of these subcommittees had sort of a distinct scope and a charge. The four subcommittee scopes revolved around career readiness and employability. Secondly, hiring, retention, and reentry. Thirdly, entrepreneurship, tax incentives, and procurement. And finally, transportation technology and other employment supports. And so each one of these subcommittees developed a set of recommendations based on their charge to address and identify barriers to employment around their specific scope and then provide policy strategies that could address those barriers. Those recommendations were offered to the National Committee and then, once voted upon, organized into what the report entitled Work Matters. And so this framework really is a collection and a representation of the work of the task force and the efforts of our subcommittee members to really provide state policymakers with lots of options and ideas to consider when targeting employability of people with disabilities in their state. And so you might ask in looking through the framework, why isn't the policy options in it organized by the four subcommittees? Those four subcommittees, while they had a distinct scope, were kind of, there's lots of overlap because that's just the reality of how policy is implemented and how it impacts people. If you could for me, what makes the Work Matters framework so unique? And what would you like state policymakers to understand about the policy options presented in the framework? So we reorganized the framework into five big policy issue areas to sort of ensure that there was a nice flow and provide the reader with an opportunity to kind of move through these in a way that made sense logically and would allow them to understand the full continuum of the work that was done in the task force. And so each of these five policy issues addresses a particular facet of policy around workforce development and employability. The first is laying the groundwork, and this really consists of policy issues that communicate like state-level commitment to supporting employment and workforce development. So things like state employment policies and capacity building around private and nonprofit sectors, things like that. The second, preparing for work, it consists of policy options related to providing education, vocating, skill-building training opportunities for youth and young adults with disabilities. The third, getting to and accessing work opportunities, really consists of policies that ensure that the spaces, the services, the technologies, 
that people with disabilities use either to get to the workplace or once they are at the workplace, they use in their jobs, make sure that those are accessible and provide equal access to work opportunities. The fourth policy issue area, staying at work, really consists of policy options that provide employers with tools to retain and advance workers if they're injured or have an illness or have a new occurrence or progression in disability. And this is really important because a lot of people have a new injury or illness, leave the workforce, and may never come back. So this policy option is targeting efforts to bring people back into the workforce or to retain them before they leave. And finally, the fifth policy option area is supporting self-employment and entrepreneurship. And this consists really of policy options that support access and opportunity for new and existing business owners with disabilities. This is an area that I think people don't often think of when they talk about employment for people with disabilities. Entrepreneurship is widely practiced within the disability community and is really an opportunity for people to highly customize or tailor their work to their experience and to their capabilities. And so those five policy issue areas sort of make up the meat of how this framework is organized. And within those policy options, there are a number of different strategies and state examples that we put in there to allow states to sort of customize and tailor their approach to the policy options. And I was really fortunate to participate as the facilitator on one of the subcommittees, the Entrepreneurship Tax Incentive and Procurement Subcommittee, alongside Senator Massey. And I'd love to hear from Senator Massey about her experience as being a member of the task force in that subcommittee. Thanks, Kyle. And it really was an honor to serve on the task force and actually was at another meeting with CSG and they go, oh, your day job is working with people with disabilities besides being in the Senate. Can you come to two meetings? And I said, oh, sure. So uh, one, it was just very rare that the two national organizations come together like they did with this. So it shows what importance they put on this subject, which was exciting to me. There was such a good group of folks that were participating with varying experiences. Besides the folks actually on the task force, we had policy experts there. It really was good to be there to share ideas, to share them at the thousand foot level, and then sometimes to bring them down to the actual day-to-day level that different folks, you know, I was able to do when I would, we'd talk about something, I could think about one of the individuals we serve at my agency. And then after the finished product that we could share with other legislators and policy developers, and then I had the opportunity to present at the NCSL meeting in Washington in December. And then at the same day, CSG was having an all-day workshop on this subject down in Williamsburg. So I was at part of the one that morning and then drove down to Williamsburg and got there to the second half of the one down there. So it just was an exciting thing to be a part of. And I look forward to seeing more of the things that we recommended come to fruition, not only in Tennessee, but throughout the country, because we have lots of room for improvement on our statistics of employing people with disabilities. Senator, I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason, and certainly you've been in the right places at the right time and uh, Mm -hmm. been able to share your expertise through your legislative capacity and also serving as the executive of a nonprofit. So, you know, I speak for definitely women in government. We appreciate your knowledge and expertise and all that you've been able to uh, give thus far, and we look forward for more. 
Thank uh, you. Kyle, one, you're welcome. Kyle, one of the things I, I was very happy to hear earlier where you indicated that the bipartisan effort and that the 40 members that were a part of that task force, I, I just really think that that is extremely, extremely important. So we really had a true framework, if you will, because when you have all voices at the table and have the viewpoints from different individuals, it really, truly makes a better work product. And people can really gather around the concepts. And so I thank you again for touching on those particular issue areas and the necessity to have those bipartisan conversations. One other thing I did wanted to highlight here, Senator Massey, you mentioned earlier the Achieving a Better Life Experience Act that was passed in your state. And thankfully, right here in the state of Maryland, we did the same during the last legislative session. And would you like to speak about that a little bit more, if you will? Senator Alexander was instrumental in passing that at the federal level, the enabling legislation. And I had actually presented to his committee, the Health, Education, and Labor Committee, on the federal policies that work to keep people with disabilities in poverty. And so they were working on the ABLE legislation there. So the night it passed on the Senate floor, he had his office call me and tell me it passed, so now it was up to me. <laughs> and and so I, I went ahead and drafted the legislation. Then it turned out our treasurer was already working on it, too. And so we came together, and I carried their piece of legislation It had some initial funding, and we were able to get the governor to include it in his supplemental budget amendment once we had passed the legislation. So everybody was kind of working together, and they periodically come and give me an update, and, and they've gone around the state to do trainings for families and providers and advocates on how to utilize it. And it is available for out-of-state folks, too, that can invest in the Tennessee program. So I was real excited to be a part of that, but it was one of those things that everything kind of came together at once, and it's just neat to see it flourishing and giving people an opportunity to have savings for some real important things as opposed to this $2,000 limit that really was worth probably fifteen, twenty thousand 20000 in today's dollars. I was really excited to be a part of that. It's good to hear all those great things and the, really the collective efforts of all. Uh, Bobby, I don't want to leave you out of the conversation. Any thoughts that you have on that subject or even back to our uh, Work Matters framework? To me, the Work Matters framework is one of those documents that when I was staff director and chief counsel for the Senate Subcommittee on Disability Policy, which in the United States Senate, I would have died for. Because what it is in one place is two, 300 state examples of state policy in the areas that Kyle described. And I think it's up or will be shortly on the web where for each example, there's a state, and you click on that state, and up comes the statute or regulation or executive order. And what a goldmine of a resource of policy options so that you can see what your colleagues around the country are doing in a given area. And instead of starting from scratch and reinventing the wheel, you can learn from your peers. And I just think it's just an incredible 
resource. Thank you for sharing that. I know that my experience since being a part of Women in Government, that ability to have other states and other colleagues as a resource has been vital to legislation that has been moving throughout the nation. And so I, I can't emphasize enough what you just said. So that uh, in of itself is very important to be able to have those tools and the resources available at your fingertips. Uh, when I was the staffer, stealing was my forte. <laughs> It's the highest form of flattery. (laughs) (laughs) That certainly gives us a new way of looking at things. (laughs) Uh, Kyle or Senator, anything else you'd like to add? Any closing statements? One thing that I had mentioned is it's interesting being a provider, and I've been at my agency 24 years, uh, the executive director there. But when I came to the Senate, I really didn't realize the role that I would play in advocating for adults with disabilities, I knew I would do that, but really being a translator for our senators and actually for the department, when they come in and testify, say, before our health committee, oftentimes I can tell when what they're saying is not being communicated to my peers. And so I'll either rephrase it or I'll ask a question or different things, and it's been, you know, I, I am the only social service provider slash businesswoman in the General Assembly here in Tennessee. And so it is more of a rarity and it's been kind of a unique role, but one that I've honored to be able to serve in. And so we can just I'll work harder to make a difference in this area because these are individuals that we're talking about and getting employed and being a part of their community, the thrills that that gives them. I mean, it's, they're achieving their life dreams. And it's more than just about policy. It's about people. Indeed. At the end of the day, we're impacting so many lives. And to keep that in the forefront of our mind, I think, is extremely important. i very, as you said, very thankful for serving in the capacity of a state legislator. We, at sometimes, at the end of the day, get a little weary, but we do know that it's very important to make these changes, make these positive changes so people can have quality life. Uh, Any other closing statements? This is Kyle. I would like to just mention that we released the report in December of 2016, and we hope that what happens is that people read it and then put it up on a shelf and then never uh, use it again. No, of course, we don't want people to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. we want this to be a resource that is continually used and something that really can be instrumental in working on disability employment policy in the future. And so what we really have to offer sort of the next step for this effort is to provide technical assistance to provide research support for state policymakers as they're looking through this report and as they're considering some of the options that are in Work Matters. Everyone who's part of the C team, you know, has read this cover to cover. We know it. We live and breathe it, and we're in a position to be able to really leverage that wide network that I spoke about in the states. That's, I think, the next step for us is providing a lot of that support and ensuring that legislators and policymakers who are motivated to work on these issues have the capacity to do so. Thank you, and I believe that through this podcast, we are certainly on the road to getting the information out and making sure everyone is involved in the process and at least having the tools necessary to move their states forward. 
I'd like to thank all of our guests for joining us on the first episode of the Women in Government podcast. I also like to say thank you to all of the listeners who are taking the time to hear this important discussion. If you have any questions or would like to participate in an upcoming episode, please respond via the feedback link in this email. Be on the lookout for our second episode, which will be about career planning and the credentialing of people with disabilities. If you'd like to call in and ask a question about this topic, please let us know through the feedback link. Until next time, I'm Maryland Delegate Cherie Sample-Hughes. For more information and to read The Work Matters, a framework for states on workforce development for people with disabilities report, visit ncsl.org and search Work Matters. You've been listening to the Women in Government podcast, a resource made available for those interested in discussing important issues and policies of the day. For more information, please visit our website at womeningovernment.org.